Where's the satisfactory ending from that? You know, people don't generally see themselves as being white British, but if you make everything about identity, then the 85% of people in this country are white British. You're going to start seeing themselves as uh, seeing their identity along racial lines. You're going to start, set up a, a race war. It's just, it's suicidal from everyone's point of view to do this. There's nothing to be gained from, from doing it, and it has to end. Welcome to The Pin Factory, the Addis with Institute's new podcast. My name is Matthew Lesh and I'm the Head of Research at the ASI. This week I'm joined by our Head of Government Affairs, John McDonald, and Christopher Snowden, the Head of Lifestyle Economics at the Institute of Economic Affairs, who can hear vaping in the background. Today we're going to discuss Dishi Rishi's economic statement, Public Health England and PH Fail, and Council Culture. But before we get into that, Chris, I've always wanted to know, what is Lifestyle Economics? Well, that's a big question. I've never had um, the guts to ask before, but I've got you on recording. Uh, I feel like I can hold you to account. Well, you know what I do, and uh, you know what I write about, so that's what lifestyle economics is, really, whatever I want it to be. It's the um, We kind of define it as being the economics of controversial, usually adult, uh, but legal activities, um, which are under threat of prohibition. So it's essentially it's I mean it's a growing list unfortunately but um, you know smoking vaping drinking eating consuming sugary drinks All gambling yeah yeah you get to the stuff that makes life worth living and of course uh, I was joined by John McDonald there you heard a second ago um, not our former chancellor who's come to work for the ASI <laughs> um, but John I was kind of interested uh, you've started at the ASI in the middle of a pandemic so you started a new job have you how what has it been like. Uh, oh, it's been great. No, it's been it's been kind of weird, actually. Um, you feel like you have actually, to say that, right? Because you, you've yeah, got to keep yeah, your no, job. <laughs> it's been, I mean, working from home this whole time, because obviously I, n- I never got to go into the office at all. Uh, hmm. I don't know. It feels like I'm some sort of freelancer. It's very bizarre. Well, we have appreciated everything you've done uh, in such a short period of time. Uh, so I just wanted to get it start today by talking about Dishi Rishi's uh, Chancellor's statement. So he's added another $30 billion to the national debt in a much-anticipated announcement. Uh, the plan includes uh, an increase in the stamp duty threshold, VAT cuts for hospitality, eating out vouchers, various training and environmental programs. So there's a lot in there. I, I think as a premise, though, I want to get your feelings on where we're at in terms of this economic recovery or their lack of recovery Chris, are, are you thinking a V? Are you thinking a U? Are you thinking a, an L? And therefore, we need this huge stimulus. And where do you see the economy going from here? Downhill massively uh, in a in a way that no one alive has ever seen before. Uh, I think for a little moment of time back in March, there was a legitimate hope of a V-shaped recovery, but that depended on the lockdown being fairly short and sweet, and on people immediately going back to their normal lives once it finished. Uh, the lockdown instead went on for a very long time, too long, in my opinion. And people aren't going to go back to their normal lives, partly because the government's done such a great job of petrifying them about this virus. Um, so various different sectors are completely gutted. Clearly, you know, tourism and airlines, things like that, very obvious examples, but things like casinos and pubs as well to varying degrees. Um, so people aren't going out. You know, the statistics are unbelievable. The ONS did a survey last week which found that only 21% of people would feel comfortable eating a meal in a restaurant. Uh, Super Saturday, a couple of weekends ago, when the pubs had been closed for three and a half months and were suddenly open, only saw 5% of British people going to the pub. So how does that compare to a normal weekend? Do we know if that's a lot less? Well, it was, I, thanks for asking. It was uh, 45% down turnover wow. that weekend as uh, compared to the same weekend the year before. Mm. So, and that was our big rush. That was supposed to be like 10 years Eve's put together, if you believe the press. Uh, people were crowded in one particular street in Soho, but apparently not very much anywhere else. So, you know, it doesn't take it doesn't take many industries to be kneecapped for there to be a serious recession. And yeah. we're not only seeing that, we're seeing a lot of other industries being severely uh, incapacitated. So we're looking at, I, th- in, I think, four, four or five million people unemployed and once a furlough 
scheme ends, we'll start seeing what's been in the post all the time. And once those people haven't got any money or under doll, they obviously won't be able to spend as much. And it's a downward spiral and we'll see a, a terrible depression here and around the world. Yeah, so I'll say I was in uh, that particular street in Soho, I think a little bit before those photos were taken. And I can tell you that it was so busy outside, precisely because there were so few people allowed to go inside. So all the kind of bars in particular that would normally be bustling with people had table-only service, which was quite a weird experience and not one that I'm rushing to repeat after that particular evening. Although I have been out a few times since. John, are you as pessimistic as, as Chris is about our economic future? Well, I mean, to echo what he said um, about uh, eat out to help out, <clears throat> or rather the reopening of the hospitality sector. I mean, I think I think the government's taking a big gamble uh, to try and to try and change those habits that we've all formed during during the crisis to get us to go back out, and uh, it could end up being quite an expensive mistake uh, for the chancellor to try and encourage us all to go out and dine out and get takeaways and so on. Oh, it's not going to make any difference, really, is it? Come on. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're going to give people half-priced meals on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday when people don't want to go out in the first place. You know, it's it's a very expensive gesture. I don't think it's going to have any meaningful effect on its own to the economy. It's a, it's a very expensive gesture to try and encourage people to leave the house again, but it's not going to work. It, there's nothing the government can do or say now that's going to undo all those months of terrifying people. So, Chris, I, I broadly agree with you that I, I think my view is that we're in a huge danger point. I'm not sure I'm quite as pessimistic. I mean, I kind of see two potential scenarios. I mean, Andrew Halliday at the Bank of England said one, a very optimistic one. He, he declared it's going to be a V and he's going to look very silly, or he has looked silly previously, if it doesn't end up being a V. And that's a situation in which we saw this huge dive in spending, but then it kind of, people have a lot in the savings, it kind of comes back. Um, there's a, the, We might have got some productivity benefits of, the, the fact that businesses have to cut some costs. Now, in the short run, that might lead to some unemployment, but in the longer run, that could actually be um, economically beneficial if the economy can um, bounce back and can restructure successfully. Um, I do think, though, you're right, that there, there is a risk in kind of any scenario here of, of high unemployment. I get worried, um, maybe more so than you, Chris, about the risk of a potential second wave, not necessarily because I think of the the, the people who necessarily would, would get it and, and suffer as a consequence just because of our economic reaction to that. I look at my, my home city, Melbourne in Australia, that's just shut down a second time. Um, in the scheme of things, a very small number of cases, but once you've said you're not going to have any cases, uh, you have to shut down again and again and again. And that kind of uncertainty is what's going to cause long-term damage if we can't get something like tests and, and trace working successfully um, and as a system to make us feel comfortable with going out and, and acting normally again. I'm worried about second wave too. I mean, the second wave would really end all hope, I think, of the economy bouncing back in the medium term. Um, I wrote about this for the Sunday Telegraph the other day. You know, um, all the scientists were, and I assume are, in agreement that there would be a second wave in the winter. And the more we suppressed the first wave, the bigger the second wave would be. And people just putting this out of their mind. Will people be prepared to go into lockdown again? I gather there's a bit of resistance in Australia. Um, I think it would be very, very hard in in the winter time. We've been so lucky with the weather the first time. But no, I'm not at all complacent about a second wave. It's just there is nothing to look forward to at the moment. You know, everything is a horrific nightmare. Yeah, I, f- I feel like there is a little bit of resistance, but on the other hand, I think the political impetus was to was to do the second lockdown. So there was definitely more resistance than the first lockdown, but the sense in which this might be necessary, I think, is probably has majority support. I just want to go back around to some of the specific policies that Rishi announced. Um, from my viewpoint, the only thing I particularly liked from the announcement was the stamp duty card, just because we know stamp duty is a terrible tax, holds back transactions, keep people in properties that they shouldn't be in. Um, Chris, did you have any particularly strong feelings other than that? What, what was your take on the, the broader announcement, I guess, the, the economic thrust of, of this government? And was there anything you thought was missing there? Well, I'm generally in favour of governments lowering taxes regardless. I'm particularly keen on lowering regressive taxes like VAT. Um, I just think it's debatable whether this is really the moment to do it. You're quite right in saying that one small thing to be positive about is the fact that people's personal savings have not been higher for God knows how long, a generation or more. So people do in the short term have money in in their pocket, and that's why we don't really need a stimulus. 
You know, this is all governments seem capable of doing is trying to stimulate the economy. And what Sunak's trying to do makes a bit more sense than what Alistair Darling tried to do after the financial crash and try and encourage people to buy new cars and stuff like this. But that's not really the issue yet, at least. We don't really need a Keynesian package. Uh, It's not clear what we need, but I don't know if the government should be um, reducing the tax base even more. But you know, no one seems to care about that as well. Everyone's put that to the back of mind. It's it's absurd to me. You see all these right wingers who suddenly got on board with the idea that it's a magic money tree. Money doesn't really matter. We've got low, you know, low interest rates. Let's uh, make it makes sense all of a sudden to to borrow lots of money and and spend it on infrastructure projects. They've all become Corbynistas just because their boy Boris is in Downing Street, or in some cases because they personally are so petrified of this virus that they think that money is no object. Um, it's it's pathetic, you know. I've no, even if you add up the incredible sums of money that the government's borrowing, it's still only part of the picture. The the massive decline in the amount of tax the government's getting is is terrifying, really. Yeah, we we, we calculate at the ASO we calculate an annual cost of government day, which is the day in which you basically stop spending on government, both in terms of tax and, and borrowing. And normally that's around mid-year, kind of late June. It's definitely, uh, we haven't finished the calculation just because there's been so many new announcements, but it's it's looking probably into September this year, which would certainly be the, basically mean the government is is almost kind of three three quarters of the economy. One part I found fascinating about the way in which the, the overspending was this end of furlough £1,000 bonus if you keep someone on to, to January next year. Now, that said one a few things to me. One, it said Rishi's super scared about the huge mass unemployment caused by the furlough scheme. And two, I think police shows a lack of grasp on the massive cost of hiring people. Like £1,000 isn't going to be enough to keep somebody on if you weren't going to keep them on otherwise. And it's interesting to say the likes of John Lewis, Primark, William Hill have all announced that they won't take that bonus. Um, and that's partly because they're closing their some stores and they, they probably don't think it would be a good look to fire a bunch of people and then then take a bonus to the people they keep on. John, what did you think of the announcements? What did you take away from it? Outside of um, the uh, the stamp duty cut, which I think we're all we're all pretty happy about, um, I felt like most of what was announced was in the realm of gesture politics, uh, like like Chris said earlier. Uh, I think the Kickstart scheme, for example, is is kind of a tacit admission that the minimum wage often stands in the way of young people getting paid work. And uh, well, like you were saying with the job retention scheme, it's it's not really clear um, whether a £1,000 bonus would actually be an effective incentive in retaining employees. I think it could be quite costly again for the government without much uh, of a success rate. And uh, I think somewhat counterintuitively, it might have made better sense uh, for the government to have made it easier to uh, for businesses to hire and fire people, giving them confidence to retain or take on new staff and the knowledge that they can part ways should things not work out. Yeah, I think I think a big issue is going to be this 45-day redundancy notice period, mm. which means businesses are going to start talking about firing people and, and start that process sooner rather than later because of the end of furlough. It's amazing to also to see Keir Starmer to the right of Boris and a conservative government, particularly on those those £1,000 furlough statements. He called them a deadweight loss, and somebody accused him on Twitter of parroting the Adams with Institute's lines, <laughs> uh, which is more or less our thinking. Um, where do you see this, this government's broader economic vision is there is there a vision or is this is this over john i mean when we when we listened to the build 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 speech uh a couple of weeks ago uh it 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 was largely inspiring rhetoric right we were drawing on all these rooseveltian themes but as you talked about with stephen bush last week it actually gives very little direction to the civil service or the public as to what the government's broader uh broader plan is underlying these announcements I mean, we could we could see something more substantive uh, in in the autumn budget, but for now, it's all it's all very sort of piecemeal and, and gesture based. Chris, well, I just I mean, it's obviously some of it's better than others, but I just I just have so you know, little hope that I just don't think any of it matters. I just see most of it has been even more money down the down the drain. I just I mean, it's not the it's not the issue, you know. This kind of stuff. It's so trivial compared to the size of the looming catastrophe. It's not like I'm, you know, I, I think I have a much better plan. It's just that the government's in an impossible position. People are expecting to keep unemployment to a reasonable level, and it's just not going to happen. It's impossible. Even without the lockdown, it would have been impossible. I'm not one of these people who blames a lockdown for everything. The virus itself is a, is a massive problem that would have stopped people going out. But 
it's not going to go away and there's certainly not going to be a vaccine for a good six months and it may it may never come around right the vaccine what are we going to do just hope it disappears on its own yeah i think being vaccine dependent is a dangerous strategy and that's certainly the position uh, australia and new zealand are now in so if you look at new yeah. zealand where something like 10 percent of their economy and 15 percent of their employment is tourism yeah. that's a pretty large chunk of your economy to say uh we're not going to open up until there's a vaccine. Um, purely as someone who might want to visit Australia, you now have to pay uh, $3,000 to hotel quarantine for two weeks um, and not leave the hotel room very strictly now because that was the source of the infections in Melbourne. Um, so isn't, and that's a huge, again, it's a huge part of the Australian economy and, and a huge part of global trade. I guess I'm a little bit more hopeful. Uh, I think it's probably six months until we get a, a vaccine delivered. I'm moderately hopeful that there will be a vaccine. Um, but I think it, to some extent we're going to have to accept a low level of spread of the virus um, in the community. And that's effectively what we've done in the UK, as long as we have very good testing and tracing, which um, we don't necessarily have to the extent we need in the UK, but at least the government's trying to build, um, which I guess will probably bring us to our next topic. In the latest coronavirus scandal, Sky News has done a special report highlighting how the government has been gaming testing statistics. Uh, meanwhile, a consensus has developed about the central failure of public health England in testing earlier this year and the need to reform the organization. Now, Chris, you've been scrutinizing PHE since its establishment almost a decade ago. I was wondering if you could run us through kind of the history of the organization. Why does this exist? What, what is this? And, and what are they supposed to be doing? Well, many years ago, local authorities had responsibility for public health. And those that was in the days when public health issues were a bit more like the kind of thing we've been dealing with the last few months. I mean, it tended to be about hygiene and uh, the sewage system and quarantining people who had infectious diseases. And then it kind of got centralised. And as part of the, a part of the Lansley reforms in 2012, it was decided to push it back to the local authorities again. I don't actually have a strong view on whether that's a good idea or not, but that's what happened. But Although it was pushing it back to the local authorities, and although this was the austerity era, David Cameron couldn't resist setting up a massive Leviathan bureaucracy to help coordinate the whole thing, and that was Public Health England. Since followed, actually, this year by Public Health Scotland. Um, and Public Health England was always going to be the kind of the mothership for the broader public health movement. Um, which is not generally interested in what I would call proper public health issues. They're interested in minimum pricing for alcohol and control of tobacco and sugar taxes and so on. And sure enough, that's exactly what it focused on. In fact, his very first pronouncement on the day it was formed in April 2013 was on minimum pricing for alcohol. What a wonderful idea it would be. And from time to time, they put out various reports full of you know quack science pushing an agenda, essentially a nanny state agenda on food and smoking. Vaping has been the only good thing it's been, you know, it's been the only issue it's been fairly sound on. Why do you think the, the public health bureaucracy, has, or the, at least the public health world, has become so focused on these nanny state issues? When I have a look at the technical mandate the minister gives Public Health England, it, it literally said the number one item was to track the outbreak of infectious diseases. Yeah. But I, I know this is a big inconsistency. If you look at the, the About Us page on Public Health England, their number one priority is health inequality, which yeah. tends to be a bit more <laughs> their, their code word for what, as far as I can tell, what we consider to be nanny state, which is the different people in the population of some people are fat and some people are thin and therefore we need to deal with the fat people. W what's happened? Is this just because we didn't think infectious diseases were a problem anymore? Is, is that is as simple as that and they just wanted to justify their existence by doing other things or we just not been taking infectious diseases seriously enough uh, it is partly that it is you know around the western world it has been partly that they became almost victims of their own success and they had managed to get rid of infectious diseases by and large from rich countries and so they needed something else to look at there's also the issue of kind of political campaigners wanting to legitimize themselves or, or fight a political war wearing a, a different hat and so the public health movement is overwhelmingly anti-capitalist and pro big state um they're against various industries and public health gives them a way of attacking certain industries at least if not industry in general but i mean for what, whatever the reasons may be that has been the way it's gone over the last 40 years and particularly over the last 20 years so it's focused on all these issues. To be fair, let's be fair to Public Health England for a moment. They do have 
infectious disease centres. They have been stockpiling vaccines. They do provide the vaccines and distribute them to schools and doctors and whatnot and make sure that people get their MMR injection and TB jab and, and, and the rest of it. And, and they do that, as far as I'm aware, pretty well. But their main focus seems to be on taking the sugar out of biscuits and increasing the tax on alcohol and so on. And they have completely dropped the ball. I mean, you've, you've done very good research on this yourself, Matt. Um, they dropped the ball enormously on, um, on COVID-19. They seem to have been sidelined, presumably because no one trusts them to actually do their job properly. They haven't been communicating at all well with local authorities. Even a couple of weeks ago, they still weren't giving the the data on infections to places like Leicester. Leicester didn't realise it had an outbreak of, of COVID because public health hadn't been giving them the data. They, they've dropped the ball in every possible way. They should be tarred and feathered, but I suspect actually they're going to come back and snatch victory from the jaws of defeat here. Yeah, I mean, I see... Uh, three main failures when it comes to public health England, which the first one I, I think you've just gone through very well, which is the focus, which is um, even in February and March, uh, we saw public health England releasing reports about diversity and equality. We saw them tweeting about sugary drinks and fast foods when there was a there was a forthcoming pandemic that would about to shut down a third of our economy almost, and they're still banging on about these other issues that are relatively minor. So that's the focus issue. And the second issue is the strategic issue, is a lack of imagination. Now, they weren't alone in this respect, but um, they, they basically started by treating COVID like a flu, not prioritizing testing and tracing. Um, they ran ahead with... Uh, non-pharmaceutical interventions like closing uh, schools and businesses, at least uh, through their analysis that they they provided to government. And then there was, and this is where I've done a bit of work, particularly early on uh, back in March and April, which was the tactical fail, failure to expand testing um, from a single lab where it began successfully in January um, to accepting help from all the dozen public health laboratories and then the NHS. And then uh, the failure to do that really into March and then just rebuffing and ignoring offers from charities, from universities, from private companies. There was this, we'll do it all ourselves. We've got this infrastructure, but it, it just didn't scale to the what was necessary to do this mass testing and tracing to the point where we got to early April. And Matt Hancock, as you, as you said, they um, lost responsibility for it. So it was effectively taken up by the department, a team the department was responsible for expanding testing. Um, do you think that probably in some ways would connect to what you're saying earlier about their kind of opposition to private industry, that they saw private industry offering or to help them and they thought, no, we know better. Is that just the kind of mentality of PHE? Is that just their internal culture? Yeah, very much so. And not just PHE, the public health movement in general. They're extremely distrustful of businesses in general. Um, it's just the, the way they are. But um, yeah, there's there's a lot of talk in Whitehall about public health England being, if not abolished, then massively reformed. And they may well become the fall guys for the relatively high rates of death from COVID, and rightly so. But at the same time, if you look at what's being said now about obesity, they're, they're kind of winning. They've, they've lost every battle, but they may end up winning the war because the government now is blaming the public for being fat and saying, if we want to avoid a second wave or at least prepare for a second wave, everyone needs to lose weight. And they're dusting down the chartered obesity strategy, which Public Health England have been banging on about for several years. And they're going to bring some of this stuff in. And this is happening This is happening globally, actually. The, the, these, the public health movement worldwide, certainly in Western countries, they, these people should be tarred and feathered, and they're actually getting away with doing what they always wanted to do. There's talk this week about banning smoking outdoors, outside pubs, because you know it's unfair apparently for smokers to have to be anywhere near smokers. And this is something that the anti-smoking lobby have wanted to do for ten years and never found the excuse to do it. And at the very moment at which no one should care about the nanny status, at the very moment at which everyone should realise this is incredibly trivial, these are not real public health issues, let's work on the real public health issue, they're getting away with doing the stuff they've been trying to do for years. It's, I mean, it's absolutely outrageous. Uh, you, these are the public health organisations that told us that masks don't do anything and now they finally admitted that they do. They told us a noble lie. Um, they they basically parroted the World Health Organization's view from China that there was no human-to-human transition. They failed to scale up testing and let the private sector do testing, which meant that we weren't tracing the outbreak and, and we allowed it to 
grow to a huge scale. Um, told well us that travel bans don't work. Yeah, they, I mean, they told us travel bans don't work. And yet, if we look at Australia and New Zealand, they put in place travel bans and from China early on and, and it worked like anything else because if you people can't travel with a virus, then they can't spread it. I mean, just basic logic. Um, it, it's, it's absolutely ex- excruciating to see them now try to claim victory. John, where do you think we, we go next with these public health proxies? What, what are you seeing that's kind of the talk of the town from, from your kind of government affairs perspective? Well, I think we've got kind of two sort of, sort of competing hypotheses here, one of which is, as Chris was saying, that they're, they're in some sense snatching victory from the jaws of defeat and that we're talking about obesity um, and, and sort of public health campaigns. Um, my, my best hope is that they, they're stripped of all sort of, sort of genuine health responsibilities and are just left as a sort of sort of campaigning body. Um, if we look at Michael Gove uh, a couple of weeks ago talking in his Ditchley lecture uh, about reforming government and the, and the privilege of public service, it does seem that, that Public Health England is sort of really flies in the face of what he's talking about. I mean, I quote Gove quoting FDR here, uh, it is common sense to take a method and try it. If it fails, admit it frankly and try another. Uh, and another quote is to ask ourselves if we can demonstrate the effectiveness of what we have done with other people's money. Can we prove that regulations and agencies we have established have made clear, demonstrable, measurable improvements to the lives of others? I can't really think uh, of a body more worthy of the uh, of the chop than Public Health England if these are the criteria by which uh, the, the cabinet is going about reforming the civil service. Yeah, and, and Boris Boris made a, a comment in his speech. Uh, that he is Bill Bill Build speech about how there were certain Tower parts recurring of the, bad dream, yes, re- recurring bad dream, which is certainly the way I perceive public health England as a recurring bad dream, and so defensive. It was extraordinary. Um, they actually did a, a few responses on this, never to me, but they did a response to the Sun about this, and they basically said, "No, no, no, we were never responsible for testing. That was the department, it was the department responsibility." So in the end, I guess no one's to blame. And it's everybody else. But I, I think, Chris, you mentioned this at the start, how the government's taking responsibilities away from them. Obviously, it's largely taking testing and tracing away from PHE. Um, you've got this joint biosecurity center. Do you think the, the scary scenario here then is that all the serious stuff is taken away from PHE and you just create this new organization that's purely a nanny status monstrosity? Well, that would be one way of doing it. I mean, I, my, my policy would be to abolish Public Health England, replace it with a Centre for Infectious Disease Control. And then if the politicians still want a nanny state body, they can set up something called Nanny State England. I'd much rather we didn't have to fund it, but at least we'd know where we were then. Do, you, do either of you know much about this? this uh, the, the Joint Biosecurity Centre? Is that kind of, a, kind of our version of the CDC? Sort of, not really. Uh, it's a bit more yeah. technical than that, I think. You know, they, they, these guys, like I said before, they yeah, we've got they've got a base in Collingdale, a couple of centres where I'm sure they do good work. They've got two thousand people working on infectious diseases, who you'll probably never you know hear from personally. But I, you've got to assume a lot of these people are doing good work. They did stop piling of vaccines. It so happens none of the vaccines work on COVID. That's not their fault. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the the issue is that I don't think you can be doing your job properly when you're spreading yourself over so many different completely you know completely different issues and we need to have an organization that is purely centered on infectious disease exactly the same by the way applies to the who i think david cameron had a pretty good suggestion on this you set up the world's center for infectious disease controls you sideline the who give the new organization lots of money make sure it stays apolitical and we're getting somewhere i think we should have exactly the same thing with uh, with Public Health England, and then maybe it'll be able to do the job properly. And on this testing issue, you know, um, I'm, I'm like you, Matt, I'm not quite clear whether they actually were in charge of testing specifically or not. If you read some of their pandemic response paper, uh, papers written several years ago, they give you the impression that Public Health England are basically going to lead the way on this. They're going to be doing everything. They're in charge of PPE stocks, they're in charge of testing, they're in charge of everything. And when push comes to shove, they didn't seem to be in charge of anything. And you didn't even see anyone from PHE on TV. It was all Chris Whitty, Patrick Valance and, and politicians. Yeah. And, and with the, the Joint Biosecurity Centre, I think right now it's basically responsible. Uh, and if you remember back in June, Boris, uh, or was it late May, announced that it would have these risk levels and the Joint Biosecurity Centre would decide which level of risk we're at relative to loosening restrictions and that kind of fell away pretty quickly um i I think the the longer term idea is probably to give them more responsibility for 
assessing the the risk of a of a new infectious disease and therefore stripping that responsibility from public health England. Uh, it seems to be where they're going on that. Um, on a brighter note, though, uh, we we can look at um, at least one case where there has been a public a so called public health agency abolished, which is the Australian National Preventative yes. Health Agency, which was abolished by the Abbott government. And I'll note I'll note that Australia's had barely over 100 deaths from COVID. And it turns out you don't need a National Preventative Health Agency uh, to have a full-on public health response. In fact, in some ways, you could argue it, it undermines it. Very good point. Yeah, I've kind of forgotten about that, but I, I remember celebrating when, when Abbott got rid of that organisation. But they probably didn't have much knowledge or experience of virology either. You know, they seem to me entirely a nanny state organisation banging on about vaping and alcohol like all the rest of them do. So it's no loss to see the back of them. Yeah, maybe it was for the best that it was a separate organisation. In Australia, it's a little bit more complex as well because I think a lot of infectious disease control would notionally be at a state level where the, where the health responsibility is. Mm. And therefore, this National Preventive Health Agency was, as you said, all about um, the, the dark side of so-called public health rather than where the focus should be. And, and hopefully we will be able to get back to the focus. The debate around counterculture has reunited around a letter in Harper Magazine, signed by over 150 well-known authors, writers, and public intellectuals, from J.K. Rowling to Noam Chomsky and, and Applebaum. The letter claims that the values of open debate and intellectual diversity have been replaced with ideological conformity. However, it has been heavily criticised already by people who think it's just supporting wealthy and powerful individuals being able to be offensive without scrutiny. I just want to, to step back for a moment, though, before we get onto the specifics of council culture and have a think about to what extent, I, I suppose, as libertarians or classical liberals who would be more traditionally concerned about state infringements on liberty, should we be, be concerned about the idea of what is a culture, something that people are criticising each other, some people are losing their jobs or not being involved in certain voluntary pursuits? John, is this something that we should be worried about? Yes, I think so. I mean, I want to kind of move the, the discourse away from all this talk about celebrities and, and them complaining about, about being cancelled, as it were. I think the real damage comes from the, the chilling effect uh, that occurs uh, when ordinary people don't feel comfortable and expressing opinions that aren't identical left. I'm not trying to say this culture is really systemic or all over the place, but I, I do certainly think it exists, particularly around universities and, and certain industries and sectors. Uh, where people just really feel uncomfortable to to express uh, certain opinions uh, for fear of social reprisals. I think there's a lot of preference falsification that goes on, particularly among a young among, among younger people, uh, uh, where where they just keep their heads down or even tacitly support things they don't necessarily believe in. Um, I well, the libertarian approach is simply that people should not be you know, legally banned from you know, uh, go on these witch hunts. So no, obviously I'm not saying that they should be banned from doing it. Should I be, should we be concerned? Yeah, very concerned indeed. You know, I was probably as guilty as anyone of kind of ignoring all this woke stuff for a, a long time, or at least just dismissing it as being basically funny and incredibly stupid. Uh, it wasn't really till I read Coddling of the American Mind a couple of years ago, I started taking it more seriously. And I'm certainly taking it seriously now because it's a, horrendous um, threat to Enlightenment values. I mean, these people are so brainwashed into believing things that are wrong and evil, um, dismissing empirical evidence. Um, you know, where do you begin with it? You know, it, it's, it, it's terrifying, not only that it's taken over the universities, particularly obviously in America, but clearly here too, to, to a large extent. But now these people are leaving university and going into HR departments, going into business where they expect the world to pander to their whims as well. And no one's apparently got the courage to, to say no. I mean, finally, this letter's come out, uh, which has got lots of, you know, good liberal left people with, um, you know, generally until very recently, good reputations kicking off about it. And so they should be. I mean, anyone who's not a nutcase should be against this. It's extremely frightening that there are people who think like this and it's been going on in practice in universities for 30 or 40 years and people like me have dismissed it as being too silly to worry about and we should have taken it more seriously i see that now yeah i mean i, be, I began my my think tank career uh back in australia really focusing in actually on campus free speech issues which no one else had really talked about much at the time and i could tell particularly from the universities who and their administrators who would kind of be that old style liberal, they didn't accept that this was a problem. 
they refused to acknowledge that something was going on in their universities. And they just had to keep bringing up these examples and speaking to people and trying to explain that whilst at the top level you might think everything's fine, what's going on down at, in, in your culture is quite problematic and that you're getting, uh, as what John was saying, that increasing chilling effect where you can't express a contrarian opinion. And the whole, again, the whole point of a university, of course, is about to explore ideas freely and the, the pursuit of truth. And if we, we might find truth itself very difficult to, to reach, you need that debate, that process of disagreement. And if you don't have that, you don't really have a university anymore. You just have an ideological um, monoculture. But I think as, as you're right, Chris, it's now gone beyond the university. What begins as a, a culture moment it then ends up in basically major companies, around the world it ends up in our politics and then i think it can also uh end up in our uh politics as well i mean politics is in many ways downstream of culture one of the points people make about the supreme court is that it can be one generation behind public opinion so that there's no guarantee that the strong uh first amendment jurisprudence which really protects free speech in the u.s context and, and provides a normative value to the world will remain robust if as a broader culture phenomenon people don't really think there's a problem with cancelling certain speakers because that opinion is too offensive and a colleague of the american mind tried to identify this as kind of a psychological phenomenon which i think in some ways it is that people want coddling from and protection from dangerous ideas like an idea can be dangerous like the, an idea is the same thing as violence um, it's now said. But now we're seeing this in the physical world. Um, Christian Nimitz, your colleague, Chris, has made this point quite well on Twitter. The twi- Twitter might not feel like the real world, but sometimes when people are dragging down statues of Edward Colston, whatever you think of Edward Colston, they're dragging down that statue or they're graffitiing Winston Churchill or they're trying to destroy the centipede. Um, at that point, this, this is, suddenly Twitter fights do become the real world um, and something changes. Yeah, I wouldn't go as far as Christian. Christian's even more pessimistic than me about this. Um, but yeah, it's there's something different going on which goes beyond students doing stupid things because that's what students do. You know, there is a whole intellectual framework here which is incredibly poisonous. Um, you know, the, the, the two things in particular stand out. One is that censorship is a good thing, and we need to do more of it. <laughs> you know, literally, kind of a, a book burning mentality, a, along with the statue pulling down and all this other kind of um, iconoclasm. You know, the stuff that generally only happens once you've just had a change of regime, right? And the other thing is just this intersectional nonsense, um, which is seems to me deliberately designed to cause division, to make it impossible for different people to. Uh, live together anymore you know and if these people get their way it will be impossible for blacks and whites to live together because everyone's going to be convinced that um yeah everybody's a racist um but not only that that everybody uh, yeah has has the sins of their fathers um so it's i I can't understand where, where this stuff comes from who kind of benefits from from doing it but it's almost nihilistic you know it seems like it doesn't it, it, it's not even designed to have any happy ending because it can never be a happy ending well we were all born in the original sins whatever that sin was be it slavery or be it empire or whatever else yeah. i think i think you're right about the, the danger of racializing society martin luther king uh, and we'll talk about him again and again and again now on the right and talked about a, a society in which you're judged on the content of your character, not the color of your skin. But if you're constantly saying white people are, are inherently structurally racist and there's no way for them to give that up, there's, there's no way to move on from that. Um, it also has quite a, a negative backlash effect. Uh, because I think it, it, it promotes a radicalized response. And there's some good um, classic kind of psychological research that when a group feels threatened, they become more insular and more defensive. So when white people feel like they're being attacked, you create a white identity. And then you see yeah. Tommy Robinson in the street um, and you're wondering, how did that happen? Why is he trying to defend defend his identity? And why are people talking about white power and white lives matter? Well, it's, it's not that that was an existing theme, but because you feel the need to talk about Black Lives Matter, there are going to be a certain set of people who feel deeply attacked by that, and they're going to racialize, and they're going to they're going to say, "Well, right. why don't I matter?" Yeah, and where, yeah, where's where's the satisfactory ending from that? You know, people don't generally see themselves as being white British, but if you make everything about identity, then the eighty five percent of people in this country are white British are going to start seeing themselves as seeing their identity along racial lines. You're going to set up a, a race war. It's just, it's suicidal from everyone's point of view to do this. There's nothing to be gained from from doing it, and it has to end. So to, to both of you guys, sorry, how, how well, like, why do you think, why do you think this has happened, and how do you think we can row back from it? 
Like, where is this mythology coming from? Yeah, I mean, I've never liked the idea of the kind of march through the institutions. I think that's a bit conspiratorial. Mm. Uh, I don't think this is, it's not necessarily that this has been an organized movement to destroy everything we love in the world. But I think a few, it's it's hard to, for me to separate from some kind of Foucauldian knowledge as power. We need to change narratives. So uh, as someone stooped in a, a, a particularly kind of post-structuralist university um, arts degree, I, the, the basic premise of it, as far as I could always tell, was that going on from Marx. So Marx talks about how you have a superstructure and then you have, uh, which is controlled by the bourgeoisie who who um, use that in order to control the proletarian and, and keep them dumb and stupid. Um, more or less that's now been uh, taken up and applied more broadly in which you need to fight a knowledge war. Um, and you need to, when you say a certain idea, you're exercising power over that idea. And if, rather than it being a, a class-based fight between the proletariat and the bourgeois, it's now an intersectional fight about minor, minority groups, be it sex-based or race-based or gender inequality-based, whatever that may be. And they feel like if somebody expresses an idea that they disagree with, they're exercising power on behalf of the the, the major group in society. And therefore, you need to stop um, that from happening. You need to you need to effectively censor them and you need to fight back against them just because expressing an idea is inherently powerful. So it's actually kind of a, as a basis is an illiberal idea. So as a liberal, I, I personally believe you need to express ideas because that is, first of all, um, your basic right as an individual to have that ability to think freely and say things freely. Um, but also if we're going to progress as a society, I kind of take the J.S. Mill line that you need this debate and that that's how we improve society. This is not, doesn't work perfectly every time, but censorship is not an effective way to stop bad ideas. They just let bad ideas fester in the cold. If you look at places um, where Holocaust now, for example, is legal, let's say France, you actually get a lot more anti-Semitism than uh, the UK or the US or Australia where Holocaust now isn't illegal as just one example, because we can debate those ideas openly and we can condemn people who, who put forward bad ideas. Yeah, and that's very well put. I mean, the way I see it is very similar, really. I mean, people describe these people as Marxists. I'm not sure they really are. I doubt many so-called Marxists have even read any Marx. Uh, I think it's a kind of replacement for Marxism insofar as radical leftists have always needed to create divisions. There's always had to be a power battle. And with Marxism, of course, it was just a fairly straightforward class battle and the leftists were on the side of the working class but as time went on and the working class showed very little interest in uh, radical leftists and, and marxists they had to find new victim groups and as there is less and less prejudice against these victim groups the claims about prejudice have had to be exaggerated again and again but it, i think it's the same thing you're trying to create division you're trying to create power struggles and for that power struggle to be meaningful, there has to be someone who is being horrendously discriminated against and beaten down by the system. And in this instance, by structural racism or structural sexism, whatever it may be. But it's the same kind of dynamic. Uh, it's just that with Marxism, at least, there was some kind of theoretical positive end goal. And with this, I just don't I don't see what, what that is. Yeah, there's definitely no redemption. And I think the interesting part of it as well is the people who tend to claim oppression or talk about oppression um, in themselves tend to be quite high class in the traditional sense. They tend to be high income right. earners. Which is, which is why they can't go on about class. I mean, exactly. exactly right. Yeah, I mean, these people are, I mean, Marxists have always been fairly fairly posh anyway, but they managed to kind of hide it. People like, you know, Anthony Wedgwood, Ben and so on would uh, <laughs> drop the rates. Dress, dress right. from the up shop, like a, like a good British posh <laughs> yeah, person. Yeah, but, but as time went on, it became undeniable because they didn't even have the working class kind of least standing behind them. You know, the working class had gone off and voted for Thatcher and were trying to book their holidays. Um, so they needed to find other, you know, supposedly oppressed groups to represent. Now, now it's ironically, it's attacking those poor, dumb, white working class people who voted for Brexit or Trump because they're so immoral. Um, John, I was interested, you pointed me to an article by Flora Gill in the Sunday Times where she says oh, council yeah. culture doesn't really exist. They're not cancelling anyone. It's merely pointing out rhetoric they consider harmful and asking for it to be addressed in return for support. What do you see the difference between council culture and perhaps just good manners? Like there's certain words we don't use anymore because we know they're offensive to people. There's ways people want to be described. How do we separate those two claims out? Because I think it is a genuine claim that people shouldn't be racist, sexist, homophobic. I think it almost goes without saying. But how do we how do we separate that from what is trying to suppress debate about controversial issues? Well, that's a difficult one. I mean, it's almost like we have 
Schrodinger's cancel culture, right? Like, we're all here talking about it, uh, and yet it doesn't exist somehow. Um, I think... I think there is certainly a kind of a kind of victimhood that that reactionaries sometimes complain about with cancel culture. Like they they feel like they deserve a platform to say things that are deliberately provocative, and uh, uh, and in some cases it even facilitates their career. But I think I think the the real threat and the real onus of the uh, 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 of cancel culture is really in in replacing the narratives uh, that we have about about. Our values and about nationhood, even. I mean, it's interesting to see Trump uh, in his Mount Rushmore speech uh, suggest that America itself uh, is kind of under threat from cancellation, and that uh, the sort of the founding story of America uh, is going to be replaced with ideas of, of white supremacy and slavery, something much more negative and pessimistic than, uh, than, than how the founding fathers have been have been cast in the past. Um, I do think there's some kind of middle ground for reconciliation in the sense that. I don't necessarily have a problem with talking more about colonialism uh, and, and trying to be more objective about the way we look at empire, uh, at least in the UK. Um, but I do think there is a genuine threat uh, to, to, to the sort of the important national stories we have about ourselves. Yeah, and I think in many ways, Trump is responding to the this kind of 1619 New York Times magazine narrative that, that tries to replace American founding um, on the date of the arrival of slaves in America the first time ra- in quite a negative message of original sin rather than a more positive, optimistic ma- message of the founding, which is striving towards liberty that never quite arrives. Um, Chris, how do you separate the two out between what is council culture and what is good manners, I suppose? Um, well, I don't particularly, and I don't care why people are cancelled. Um, if, you know, if, if millions of people decide they're going to turn their back on J.K. Rowling and and not buy her books or even burn her books, I couldn't care less. But the elephant in the room here is big tech. And when we're talking about cancel culture, in practice, this means people being removed from platforms and the platforms are effectively monopolies. And that's the thing that no one, including libertarians, I think is able to come up with a satisfactory answer for because as libertarians who would say, well, it's their platform, their rules. And yet they have such power and such an ability to, you know, uh, silence people, that it's very, very concerning that the woke crowd seem to have such a hold over Twitter and YouTube and Google and Facebook. So, I mean, I don't, I don't fully disagree with you. I think I'm quite concerned when the social media companies start to remove content. Uh, I'm not sure the solution necessarily is is stepping in uh, as some of some conservatives have called for and, and forcing them to publish certain speech. Something that I don't think is often acknowledged by those who want to step in on social media companies is the extent to which this does come at from pressure by governments. So the UK government has a misinformation unit that has some kind of interactions with companies. We don't really know what they are, but we know that they're telling companies to remove certain content uh, and to censor their their content as such, um, as well as threats of regulation. So there's the online harms white paper, for example, uh, Chris, that the government's basically trying to outlaw hate speech online, which yeah. would be legal offline. And I suspect a lot of the social media companies are just under the potential, both kind of the internal work, their own internal work cultures, external work pressure, but also that third point, which is potential government responses, but potential use of law against them. And they're trying to hold that off by becoming slightly censorious themselves. Possibly. In a way, that would be slightly better because then we could push, you know, we would put pressure on the government to stop doing that. But I, I suspect that a lot of it is from the, within the company itself. Well, I was going to ask, we, I mean, I remember there was a brief period of time uh, when, when people were on Twitter were talking about moving over to Parler. Um, and there seems to be a, a, a pattern where people on, on these, these social media platforms uh, get upset about the level of free speech available on them and then, and then suggest that everyone jumps ship to a different service. Although it always seems to descend into, into sort of right-wing reactionary type stuff on those platforms. I was wondering, like, why does this happen? Why can we not just have a platform with a with a sensible discourse going on? Which I, I certainly wouldn't say that Twitter is, is that platform. Well, because the people who are being kicked off generally are right wing. So if you're a centrist or a leftist, why would you go on Parler to mm. kind of make up the numbers? So I, I haven't been on Parler, but I fully expect that it's people like Tommy Robinson and Casey Hopkins, who were the big celebrities on there. Yes. But the, the, an alternative like that is never going to get going 
because they're the only people who are ever going to be on it. And it kind of undermines the whole point of what Twitter does at its best, which is actually put people with conflicting opinions up against each other. Yeah, and very, very large numbers of people as well, including lots of people who are not particularly political either way. You know, there's basically a massive network effect problem here, which makes them effectively, as I say, not literally, but effectively monopolies. Mm. And yet breaking them up wouldn't make any difference. You know, breaking them up wouldn't improve. I can't even picture uh, what a broken up Twitter would even mean. <laughs> well, yeah, but not sure you can break it up. And I'm not sure about having government more involved in the speech policies of these platforms um, in a few ways, because I think whilst in the US, that might be a First Amendment jurisprudence in the UK if government got more involved as they're talking about with the policies of social media companies, it would be more censorious, not less. And I don't know if you've ever followed the German net GZ law, which requires the social media companies to remove hate speech within 24 hours. And um, that led to over censorship. So the companies, if you give them a legal responsibility to remove content, they're going to, um, with, with huge fines as, as right. warnings. Yeah, of course. So unfortunately, you know, when it comes to government intervention in this field, it's probably not on the side of free speech. Uh, I agree. I, I, like I said before, I don't think anyone's got an answer to this. I, th- I, I would lean towards, if I had to do something about it, and I think a time will come and maybe something will have to be done about it, I would lean more towards the American Trump-type system of just saying, look, this is a platform. Those platforms are not responsible for what's on it. The people are responsible for what's on it, and they can be sued. So I wouldn't. I would allow people to be anonymous, but if, if somebody said something that was against the law, which is to say kind of, you know... Um, credible um, threats of violence, basically, then they could be prosecuted. But beyond that, the platforms have a legal responsibility to let everybody say what they want. I'm not, I don't think it's a perfect system by any means, but I can't think of anything better. I I don't think most people who realise that speech online is also legally liable as a speech offline and that if you have an issue with someone's speech online and it's unlawful you should deal with it through traditional legal means rather than trying to get things censored and if it's not unlawful then you should more or less let them speak but i think on that note uh we're running out of time so thank you very much chris for joining us here today uh, as well as john from uh, the asi team and we'll be back next week thank you very much And a special thank you to our producer, Daniel Pryor. And please do remember, if you're enjoying the podcast, to get on to your podcast provider and give us a five-star review. 